most important part of being an authoritarian leader is having a good megaphone. <laughs> um, so I'm uh, Professor Michael Green. I'm uh, in the School of Foreign Service, where I'm uh, Director of Asian Studies uh, and Chair in Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy. And together with my colleague Joseph Sassoon from the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, um, uh, Professor Dennis Wilder um, uh, from the School of Foreign Service, Asian Studies, and U.S.-China Dialogue, and uh, Professor um, Sinan Sidi, the Executive Director of the Center for Turkish Studies, if I got that right. Um, we um, are pleased to engage you all today in a discussion about the nature of authoritarian leaders in East Asia and in the Middle East. This uh, particular program today grew out of a conversation Professor Sassoon and I had while we were sitting in our gowns for about seven straight hours, um, uh, moving from one commencement exercise to the next and graduation uh, last May. And we started talking about what we're teaching, and it turns out we're both teaching different variations of courses on leaders. Um, I teach a course uh, every other year or so on leaders in Asia, post-war leaders. Professor Soon has taught about Saddam Hussein and other leaders in an Arab context. And we started comparing notes and found fascinating um, similarities, some important cultural distinctions, and thought we ought to do something together. We were particularly puzzled um, by why it is that uh, around the world, but particularly in Asia and the Middle East, you have um, the survival of some of the most um, dictatorial regimes. And we'll talk about the Kim family in North Korea, we'll talk about Saddam, we'll talk about Assad in Syria. And, and at the same time, why you have, um, almost three decades after Francis Fukuyama wrote The Last Man in the End of History, arguing that with the end of the Cold War, the democratic form of government had triumphed, why it is that you have um, what you might call softer variations of authoritarianism uh, emerging in Turkey or in China, both of which two decades ago seemed to be heading on a more democratic path, and yet in these two very important, pivotal, uh, civilizational anchors on the either side of the Eurasian continent, uh, you have, by almost any metric, a backsliding towards more authoritarianism. So from the hardest, most um, repressive and brutal regimes like North Korea to um, countries like China, Turkey, we see a general trend uh, towards backsliding, not what Francis Fukuyama predicted or what many expected three decades ago. My own interest in leaders grew out of the time I spent as the senior official on the National Security Council in the White House in charge of East and South Asia. Dennis Wilder was my successor. Between us, I think we probably had five or six years experience sitting with George W. Bush in his meetings with leaders from uh, Musharraf of Pakistan to Hu Jintao of China. I came back to Georgetown and I started teaching this course on Asian leaders because political scientists, in fact, social scientists in general, are not trained to think about leaders. Professor Dan Byman here at the School of Foreign Service wrote a very interesting article in the journal International Security about a decade ago, arguing that international relations experts had to pay more attention to leaders. Um, political scientists uh, tend to jettison leaders. Uh, they don't like to study leaders because you can't make generalizations. You can't make generalizable theories. There's not a lot of quantitative data you can use. Um, but the fact is that leaders, and particularly leaders in authoritarian regimes, can dramatically change the nature of that regime, its interaction with other regimes, even its power. Leaders can make very bad decisions and cause wars. Leaders can stretch the actual material power of their country by conveying a sense of purpose identity that gives people or institutions in that country greater confidence. Or conversely, leaders can make a country weaker than it is in material terms by sapping their morale 
uh, or their self-confidence. Leaders are studied in other disciplines quite a bit, actually. Um, interestingly, cognitive psychology, um, education studies, uh, business schools. Um, leadership and leaders are subjects of important study in disciplines other than, uh, ironically, political science. Uh, and in each of these disciplines, uh, scholars look at leaders and, and assess them based on three tools. Um, leaders lead by first bullying, by using coercion. And in the regimes and the leaders we're going to study, that's probably the most important uh, of the tools they use. Whether that is torture, uh, imprisonment, state apparatus, state-controlled media forcing self-censorship, coercion or brutality is one of the most important tools leaders use in non-democratic societies. But it's not the only one, and it's a mistake to think that even a Kim Jong-un rules by brutal repression and coercion alone. Um, a second tool is what um, one of my uh, mentors at MIT, Dick Samuels, calls buy buying. You know, leaders get followers by giving them stuff. Uh, Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea, was popular because he gave people shoes. And so even in the most repressive regimes, leaders at some level have to deliver goods. Now, in a democratic society, that becomes much more important. But even in the most repressive regime, that's important. And I think when we talk about China, we'll find one of the most important, perhaps, aspects of Chinese leadership under Xi Jinping is delivering material goods. And then the third element, uh, the third tool, which is important for every leader in a democracy or an authoritarian system, is what Professor Samuels calls inspiring, creating a vision. Um, cognitive psychologists who studied this, social uh, psychologists who studied this, um, sometimes describe it as the ability of a leader to convince people that the leader's vision is their vision, um, that somehow the leader's vision will empower them or fulfill their aspirations or somehow address their grievances. Um, and so inspiring is an important leadership tool, even in the most repressive authoritarian regimes. And that's why it is no coincidence, comrade, that, for example, in China, there's so much focus on Xi Jinping thought, or why in North Korea, the propaganda arm, which is run by Kim Jong-un's sister, who we just saw in the Olympics, is such a critical part of regime control, creating that, that message, that vision. So um, I'm hoping we can go into some of these tools and focus on how leaders have defied the end of communism, uh, at least in terms of the Cold War East-West divide. They've defied the growth of the internet and information technology, of globalization. They've survived, and in, unfortunately for many of their people, they've thrived. We'll start uh, next with Professor Sassoon, uh, looking at the Arab world, and then we'll turn to Professor Sidi and talk a bit about Turkey, which is a nice transition back to China. And then we'll start gradually moving in the direction of, I think, North Korea, Saddam, and the really hard cases. Joseph? Thank you all for uh, coming this uh, afternoon. I think it's really important to understand that many of the characteristics or common den denominators of authoritarian leaders in the Middle East are uh, the same. And in many cases, actually, they are not that different from outside the region. And some countries had a one-party system like Iraq or Syria. Others had a multi-party system like Egypt and Tunisia. But at the end of the day, there were really the kind the same. 
They all had a very strong security service. They had a strong party dominating uh, uh, the day-to-day -day life. But even if you look at other tools, the cult of personality like people like Saddam or Assad or others have used, they really borrowed from other people. I mean, in the case of Saddam, there was a lot of borrowing from Stalin, Mao Zedong, Ceausescu. Um, and I think the point that Michael uh, uh, raised, which is about not only fear, is so critical to understand. I argued, having worked on the Iraqi archives and listened, one of the things that in Iraq we inherited that really barely exists anywhere is 1,200 hours of audio tapes of the Revolutionary Command Council. This is the equivalent of the inner cabinet. So apart from looking at documents, you're really hearing how decisions were made and what the discussions were. And one of the things that you come to realize that this was not just a republic of fear. This was a republic of fear and rewards because the people who supported the regime, whether in Iraq or in Syria, were well rewarded. And it's a fallacy to think it was just about uh, the fear aspect. I think today also I hope that we can talk uh, about why the transition in many of those Arab countries have failed um, in spite of five, six, seven years and except for Tunisia and to what role the violence and torture that prevailed for three, four, five decades have really impacted those countries and their future. So without any uh, more details, maybe I'll pass it and we'll come back to dig into for more details. Thank you, Michael. Again, once again, thank you for taking time to organize this. Um, for me, it's, it's a little strange talking about Turkey um, in this context of increasing authoritarianism, be it in the region or just in general, simply because there was so much hope and so much um, anticipation placed in front of the Erdogan administration when it first came into power back in the early 2000s. And one way or another, Erdogan has been ruling uh, Turkey um, since 2003 as president now, but uh, prime minister for successive uh, terms prior to that. Um, also, I think that's kind of worth mentioning in this sort of introductory sort of remarks would be to suggest that Turkey, um, as a political system in its own right, uh, within the region that it occupies, uh, but also in the Muslim world, possessed somewhat of an, an, you know, an, 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 a unique position, whereby since 1950, you are looking at the only substantive democratic society in the Muslim world, which was created by choice uh, and the will of Turkey's political elite uh, following the end of World War II, from which time the Turkish state has held, up until recently, um, free and fair elections, maintained a healthy and vibrant pluralist society with a dynamic set of forces, but also unique in the sense that it was a country that was firmly uh, attached to and benefited out of democratization processes and deepening democratization processes from its path to Europeanization. Uh, and that alone, was a significant factor as to why Turkey was classed as a partially free country 
um, by uh, Freedom House for successive years, but while also its society made uh, leaps and bounds in democratic consolidation phases uh, for quite some time. Um, this is not to say that Turkey was a liberal democracy, but it was a, free, a relatively free society in which uh, administrations changed from one election to the next, uh, power transitions took over. The rule of law in a recognizable sense existed for quite some time, which was offset by not necessarily adherence to strict uh, uh, adherence to universal human rights. But nevertheless, Turkey was always uh, basically projected as a society which was seen to be on the, right, uh, on the right trajectory of becoming possibly the first Muslim member of the European Union, um, a socially mobile society. Um, it was bedeviled and, be and troubled by notions of trying to balance notions of secularism within Turkish society, as well as how to incorporate faith uh, amongst societal actors. And given this, what most people are asking, or people who watch Turkey, or people in Europe who look at Turkey, or even now, the United States, basically since the second term of the Obama administration, is looking at the country and saying, how could this have gone so wrong? And it's strange for me to be sitting on this panel simply because, although we mentioned it's not exactly comparing apples, and, uh, apples to apples, but we're talking about you know, North Korea on one end of the spectrum, and we're talking about Turkey on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, there has been a sharp degradation of human rights and rule of law uh, in Turkey. And we can, at this point, actually say the rule of law in Turkey does not exist. Just under a month ago, the country's Supreme Court, the highest legal authority in the land, ordered the release of two journalists for breach of rights, which the lower court should have implemented and would have served as a precedent to release other journalists in jail, the lower court did not honor this decision. Can you imagine in this country, the Supreme Court made a ruling and the lower district court or any other court did not actually follow through? It sounds farcical even from a Turkish perspective. So there are a variety of reasons as to how this country uh, has really backslided in the last uh, five to seven years. But it's also worth mentioning that not long ago, until really until about 2010, Turkey was projected as the model, uh, if not a model, a source of inspiration for the rest of the uh, countries transitioning out of authoritarian rule or absolutist rule in the near Middle East. And since then, it has fallen even more by the wayside. And as we speak, the Secretary of State today is in Ankara to see if something can be done to mend ties between uh, these two countries at present or whether Turkey will actually be ditching its uh, credentials as a Western partner and ally of the United States. I think I can say a lot more, um, but in terms of generalizability, I think the only thing that political scientists, we, as political scientists, we have been able to prove is power corrupt. And absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Thank you, Mike, for organizing this event, and thank you for coming out on this uh, wonderfully pretty afternoon. Uh, let me start by just reinforcing a remark that Mike made and I think has been echoed here, and that is that we are talking about spectrums here. I looked up online as I was thinking about this, the Economist <laughs> Intelligence Unit, which has this audacious uh, sort of scale where they look at countries from full democracy to authoritarian. And uh, 
you'll be happy to know if you're from the Nordic states that you're the full democracies and that America is a flawed democracy on that scale. So we're about 22 on the scale. I think the UK is about 16. Um, there, is, there is a scale, and you have to think that through. Um, and similarly, all authoritarian states are not the same. As you look at China, the degree of authoritarianism under the Communist Party has waxed and waned. Chairman Mao, China's great leap forward, cultural revolution, I think you can all agree with me, was the high mark of Chinese authoritarianism. Blind obedience to the party was required, which is one of the definitions of authoritarianism. When Mao praised furnaces in the backyard, everybody built a furnace in their own backyard. Uh, it led to a deficit of uh, eating utensils in China other than chopsticks, but, um, you know, and, and it did not grow the economy, but everybody felt they needed to do this. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, of course, Chairman Mao empired young Chinese red guards to go out and to wage class warfare and class struggle against the establishment of China, uh, leading to terrible abuses uh, and humiliation of many people in China. I think the Communist Party of China learned from those experiences, and so it, it modified its way of rule. And one of the things Mike has talked about is the fact that the Chinese government certainly has allowed much more economic uh, freedom while not uh, allowing a great deal of uh, political freedom. So it fits one of the definitions of authoritarianism, and that is favoring a concentration of power in a leader or an elite, an elite not constitutionally responsible to the people. You may have heard of village elections in China, the only problem with the village elections is today you have to be a communist in good standing to stand for election in a village. So that doesn't really open up the system too much. But another part of the definition that people use and, and that is blind submission to authority, like the Chairman Mao period. I think that fits perfectly the North Korean example. There's no question that the Kim dynasty has forced people into blind uh, obedience. And in fact, North Koreans have learned how to cry on demand at public ceremonies. And uh, they, they, they know that you have to behave absolutely perfectly in order to remain on the right side of that regime. In China, it's not that way. Today, there are protests in China that the Chinese government allows. If you go on WeChat or you go on the social media, you will find demobilized soldiers out protesting the fact that they haven't been paid their pensions or they haven't been given the jobs that they were promised. Uh, two weeks ago in Beijing, 1,000 Chinese teachers from 11 provinces came to the Ministry of Education and protested. So what's happening here? What's happening is that the Chinese government sees economic protests as useful because it allows them to see where the system is failing people. And so the Chinese government is, is allowing that kind of protest to occur. However, 
If the protest moves in the direction of talking about any challenge to the one-party system of China, that kind of protest gets shut down very quickly. Um, and the other thing is this funny relationship in China between entrepreneurs, the growing middle class, and the party. You can see the party struggling with this question, okay? Um, today, there are hundreds of millions of people in China in the middle class. Some of them send their children to this campus for their educations. They travel the world. They know how to receive uncensored news media in China. They aren't blindly submissive to the government. But there is a valid concern that under Xi Jinping, some of this has reversed course. The party became quite, shall we say, limp-wristed as an organization. Corruption entered the party as the economic benefits came to the leadership and the party elites. And Xi Jinping has now reversed some of that and insisted on ideological purity. He's done massive crackdowns on party officials who uh, were deemed corrupt. In fact, the Chinchung prison in Beijing, I understand the VIP prison, is now overflowing with prisoners. They're not quite sure what to do with them all uh, because of the, the number of people that he has uh, submitted to uh, you know, the courts. And of course, I don't need to tell you, internet censorship is a big tool that the Chinese government uses in its coercion on the Chinese people. Sometimes it's very hard to understand some of this, to be honest with you. I was reading today that Disney's uh, Princess Elsa, for some reason, has become a problem on the Chinese internet. If you look up her name, you are told that uh, this is not a topic that you should be looking at. If someone out there knows why Princess Elsa got into trouble, I'd, really, I'd be very curious to know what, what her crime was or, or <laughs> what she has done to fall victim to the uh, Chinese internet censors. As Mike said at the beginning, uh, regrettably, the Chinese government does use coercion, and it is particularly harsh coercion in those non-Han areas of China, in the minority areas. Of course, the Chinese government is very fearful of the influence of external Muslims. Uh, there has been this relationship between some, a few Uyghurs, and terrorist organizations. There's something called the East Turkestan Independence Movement. And uh, we acknowledge that that movement itself is a terrorist group. But the excesses of the Chinese government have been there, and that's one of the problems with an authoritarian system. The courts really don't act as a break. There isn't a, an independent arm of government that can stop the security services from doing what they do. I, I'm hopeful that we're going through a phase of overreaction in China. Mike asked the question at the beginning, why do we think these things are happening? I have a vague idea, and I'm going to throw it out there, and you, you all can say it's nonsense. There is a sense, as I look at China and, and also at Putin, that as the United States became the lone superpower, there was this feeling in these countries that a strong man was necessary, that you needed a strong leader to compete 
with an American dominating superpower. And so you see in both Putin and Xi Jinping this idea. And of course, some are worried that Xi Jinping's going a little too far with this idea, that he's creating a cult of personality. Um, but I do think that it resonates with a lot of Chinese, the idea that consensus leadership doesn't give you that ability, as Mike said, to make very decisive decisions, right? And frankly, it has helped us in some cases in US foreign policy. Uh, when we had the problems of cyber espionage against our corporations, Xi Jinping wanted to come to Washington. And the Obama administration says, wait a minute, we need an agreement on this. Within days, Xi Jinping had sent his security czar to Washington. And we got an agreement. And that agreement has, by and large, held since it was made. Why? Because Xi Jinping, with all the authority and power, can shut down things like that in the Chinese system. One of the things I, I, I want to have you think about is how do you run an authoritarian system when now you have 300 billionaires in China? These people have huge resources at their own disposal. And you've seen in the last year the Chinese government trying to rein those guys back in. But you know, oligarchs are a difficulty for authoritarian governments. Either they compromise them, as they've done in Russia, um, or they have to really struggle with them. And China's in a bit of a struggle with its billionaires at this moment. So uh, we who work on China love to say how complicated it is, and that's because it keeps us in business. If, if you all could do China, then, then nobody would need us. Um, but I do think Chinese authoritarianism is very complex. And uh, you know, it's authoritarianism with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> Um, and so I, 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 I think it is hard to typify. It's an awful lot easier to look at a regime like the Kim regime.